0: Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm genuinely delighted to have as my guest, Andy Champion. Andy is GM, and he's VP for EMEA for Highspot. He's got 25 years at the sharp end of tech sales in business to business, and joyfully, he's got lots and lots of scar tissue. So he's not brittle enough not to have made any mistakes along the way, but he's still survived. And one thing I really like about Andy's approach is it's really very, very much about getting the best out of his people, direct reports and sales, making sure that the buyer feels safe, making sure that partners are looked after. So you're in for a, a bit of a treat today. Andy, welcome.
1: Marcus, thank you very much. Delighted to be here.
0: Excellent. Okay. So would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your history, please?
1: Gosh, if I could uh, take that snippet that you've just used, um, uh, I would use it every time. So yeah, as, as you said, I've been around the block a few times. I have some scar tissue. I've made the mistakes along the way. I Trust, trust me, um, if it's a mistake to be made, I've probably made it. But I've been lucky enough to survive. I have over 25 odd years worked my way up from being an ADR, SDR, BDR, I did that with a sales recruitment company right at the start, having come out of the army where I spent six years. My job was to make 100 dials a day. Uh, And that was, believe it or not, in, in the time before the internet, when we had to go to the compass directory, where I had to be the first person in the office to get the newspaper adverts for all the job roles, so that I could then try and get ahead of my competition. And, uh, you know, since then, I've worked my way up through being an individual contributor, through being a first line, second line, third line manager. And now uh, I'm fortunate enough to run the uh, organization for Highspot here in EMEA. So we have people in the UK, uh, in Germany and in France, about 100 people or so. And our focus is on sales enablement, which genuinely is about helping millions of salespeople worldwide get better at what they do.
0: So... Let's tackle one big, big, hairy-ass problem. At the moment, there are about 5,000 core vendors and 3,000 ancillary vendors in MarTech. There's at least 1,500 sales enablement vendors. Interestingly enough, only 183 vendors operating in the channel space, which I'm fascinated by uh, the missed opportunity. But with all of that noise and all of that choice and the pressure that sales leaders are under. How do we avoid falling into shiny itis, and how do we actually make the right technology choices? Because tech's fantastic if it's applied well, but the way I've seen it implemented, it's largely a, you know, a factor of audit if it's CRM and um, a way of creating friction and irritation for the customer. So, uh, how, how do you how do you manage your way through that noise?
1: So I think the One interesting place to start is right at the beginning, right? To strip it back to the basics and to look at what are you trying to achieve? So whether you're a CRO, a CMO, a first-line leader, irrespective of your role, whether you're in sales, whether you're in marketing, whether you're in, in enablement training, what are the imperatives? What are the strategies that you are trying to drive? And then, you know, by isolating those, you can start to build up a plan of the activities over time that will consistently drive you towards that outcome. Technology may or may not feature on that roadmap. It may or may not accelerate what you're trying to do. But one thing I know that that for sure is that technology is, is, is not going to mend a broken system. And I'll give you a, an example here, right? You've mentioned sales enablement platforms. And so let me talk about, you know, that that piece. Quite often when I talk to organizations, when I talk to sales leaders and, and, I, and I look at their sales training, and, you know, self-training is a really valuable exercise. Unfortunately, more commonly than not, It's seen as a a series of random, the experience for a rep is a series of random exercises, random certifications that take them away from their job, but yet they struggle to understand how they enhance their job. And worse still, those trainings are then not followed up on and reinforced by their first, second or third line managers going forward. So technology is not going to solve that, Marcus. So I think the first thing I would say is go back to those basics.
0: This is really interesting. I was speaking to someone yesterday, and uh, he was citing a a moment where Morgan Freeman was being interviewed, and he was asked, how do you stop racism? He said, stop talking about it. And it's a really elegant and clever solution, and actually would work. If we stopped talking about color and race, then the problem would probably dissipate you know, inside of a generation. Now, the same thing goes with the language that we use internally. I think the word training implies it's something that is done for you or done to you. I think we need to shift the language and make learning an integral part of every salesperson's job description and have learning as a central part of that process. Because I see a lot of salespeople who have 20 years, but they've got one year experience 20 times over, and they became functionally illiterate the moment they left school or uni.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, uh, there are three things that that I look for in in anybody that I interview, especially for salespeople, but but just anybody. You know, the first one of those is, is a natural curiosity, is a desire to learn, is a desire to keep on learning. And that's so, so important, because I would argue that, um, the, you know, the buying environment, the selling environment that we're in, now is different from what it was three years ago. Yeah. Right. And 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 by the way, it's getting more complex, not easier. And that's not just for us as salespeople, it's also for the buyers, right? If you're buying technology as you talked about just a moment ago, it is so complex. It is there are so many vendors making claims to you know to come in and, and solve broadly similar things but in in subtly different ways how how do you how do you break through that noise you know and and and, and i know there was a gartner report recently that that talked that 70 cent 77 percent of b2b buyers talked about just how hard it is to make decisions in in such a noisy environment where everybody's making making big claims but going back to your point curiosity is the first thing the second thing is coachability, the willingness, the desire to change behaviors, to learn new behaviors over time, super critical for all the reasons that I've just talked about and more. And then the third thing is a fire in the belly, right? In in twenty odd years of leading teams, one thing I know for sure is that I can probably help you learn new skills. I can probably help you, if you are willing, uh, get new behaviors that are going to be incremental to you. I can never ever give you fire in the belly. I can amplify it, dangle a carrot, give you a kick up the bum, but I'm not going to give you that fire in the belly.
0: So take out of every single manager job description, you must be able to motivate your team. You cannot motivate anyone to do anything ever. Motivation is an internal force. It's that fire in the belly. It's their reason why. And this is, again, what a uh, uh, begging management or leadership to really focus on having managers understand their people. The soft stuff is the hard stuff. That's what makes the difference. I look at people like you, Tom Castley, Tom Shodoff. You're loved by your people because you actually help them get better. It's not always nice. It's sometimes quite tough. But you're always respectful, and you're always looking out for their best interest And you're trying to help them achieve their full potential. Um, and therein lies the difference, because I think you are a different breed of manager and um, because the majority of managers are um very fixated on just the profit on hitting the target you know the the three the unholy trinity of you know more revenue, more logos and more pipeline so that they can fiddle a notional valuation that basically is chip wrapper but you know by six o'clock in the evening so I'm really curious how do you manage to push back against unreasonable demands from investors, from uh, the board, where they are trying to encourage you to pillage a future pipeline and do stupid things.
1: I mean, it is something you just said. If I may, I just want to reinforce, you you talked about managers. Uh, I think for me, the difference is between managing and leading. Leading is about creating space into which people can grow and then inspiring and helping them along the way. You're right. I, I can't give people that that inner motivation, but I can create space for it to prosper, right? Just like we did tomato plants, right? You put them in the greenhouse, you make sure they get lots of sun, you give them some feed, you give them plenty of water. And if you look after them well, they'll do their thing and you'll see the fruits of, of, of their efforts, right? Leadership's kind of the same thing. You create that environment. And I do think, by the way, that goes both ways. To your point, how do you address unreasonable demands? Well, you know, whether that's coming from the board, whether that's coming from your manager, your colleagues, whomever it might be, I think you've got to get it out on the table and you've got to have the transparent conversation around, well, what's driving that? Why is that important? And where is the balance between achieving those goals and those ends and the costs to get there? because there are times when sometimes you just got to suck it up and you've just just got to get on with it. But you can't do that every time. You can't have people working 18 hour days for 53 weeks of the year, right? Not just because there aren't 53 weeks in the year, but because you will literally burn them out. And what will happen is that that talent, if it's smart, will leave the organization in the same way that smart talent, if it's not, if it's not seeing that environment where it can grow and, and, and succeed, will go to environments where you know where it can, right? It's the old adage. People do not leave companies, they leave managers. So I think it's about having a constructive conversation to say, well, what's really important? Take it back, as I said before, to the to you know, to the its most simplest construct. Is hitting this quarter more important than hitting future quarters consistently? Are we okay to repeat this every single quarter? And I think, you know, depending on the answer, you'll understand very quickly the culture and the beliefs and the values of those people that you're working with.
0: That's a beautiful question. I shall definitely be stealing that. You'll get credit once. It's such an important question, and one I'm, I hadn't uh, phrased quite so elegantly, but I love that. Definitely worth the price of admission. Thank you. What, one of the things that baffles me is um, why so often organizations overassign quota? And for those who don't understand what I mean, the target's 100 million. You add up all the quotas of everybody, it should get to maybe 120 million. And instead, you see 320 million. And so no one ever hits target. So you end up with this, the people who made you successful being burnt out and leaving. And you now then create this uh, revolving door. And we're seeing this, you know, the the byproduct of this at the moment is really terrible. You know, this great resignation is just accelerating. And now we've got the great retirement on top. This represents existential threat for many businesses. So how do we make sure that managers are fit for purpose?
1: One of the beliefs that I have come to appreciate is that most of the time, most of the people, the vast majority of people that I've been fortunate enough to work with have always had great intent, have always wanted the best outcome. And I I would argue that that's kind of human nature, right? Yeah. Um, the, I the, the problems come when one person has different values than another. That's that's when the disjoint happens. But people don't actively go do out there typically and and make bad decisions. Uh, and so, you know, if you accept that um, and there are number different numbers around, but the average B2B quota attainment is about 58%. It would would be a number that that, um, exactly would report, but it's been around that 60% give or take a couple of points for many, many, many years. Well, if you've got this this situation where no matter what we do, only about 60% of our reps are, are hitting their number, how do you unpack that? And what are the consequences in a market, as you say, where... You know, right now the battle for talent is the most voracious battle, the most challenging environment that I have ever seen by quite some way. You and ultimately, my that comes back
0: of the market.
1: It's in every area, right? It's in it salespeople, it's in BDrs, it's in marketing, it's across the board. And part of that has been, you know, and, and the main cause of it, I think, at least, has been the amount of money and how relatively easy and cheap it has been to raise money in the current environment. It's a good thing. It means technology is growing. There are some incredible careers to be had. But my point is that all of us, me, you, individual sales reps, managers, have more choice. The ability to to move from one company to the next, it's almost friction-free. Of course, there's a cost to that for the individual and for the company because when you lose someone, you know the average ramp time for a B two B rep to get to full productivity is two years. To get to some productivity is probably six to nine months, in my experience.
0: And uh, Phil McGowan's research says they hit full pelt three years, and I rarely, rarely see reps now lasting longer than twelve to eighteen months. So no one, which is
1: a huge. which is a huge shame, right? That the, the the cost to them, their managers and their company and their peers is is it it beggars belief.
0: And their customers. The, the, yeah. Okay, help me understand this, because I recognize the intellectual logic of the current setup with the division of labor. So you've got marketing, you've got SDRs, you've got BDRs, you've got um, AEs, you've got CS, you've got um, account managers, and so on. Adam Smith actually said at the end of Wealth of Nations, it's a bad idea. But none of the alphas ever got to the end. Now, the reason is it tends to dehumanize. And it also isn't how real life operates. If, If your SDR can't talk about business problems to the customer, then all you're doing effectively is burning through a lead and irritating someone who didn't need to be disturbed. And when you look at the mathematics of cold calling, emailing, uh, digital marketing, none of that makes sense in any other environment. If if you behaved in the same slipshod, half assed manner uh, that most uh, sales and um, marketing uh, leaders do when it comes to the numbers in terms of productivity, If your health and safety department had a 1% success rate, I suspect there'll be a fair number of jailings. So my question here is this. If managers have so much influence and can make or break a team, they can drive people away or pull the best talent in, why is it only 3% of the global training budget is invested in them? They receive next to no coaching in virtually every organization. And they're in the most precarious role there possibly is. And that's two quarters of shitty performance, and that's it. And they get next to no support. And then you wonder why the turnover is so high and the burnout rate is so high. What the hell's going on?
1: Well, I think when we were talking ahead of today, right, you described it as the accidental manager, right? Somebody that's done maybe well as a rep and has earned the next challenge. And and that, you know, is incredible, right? We should all celebrate that. But guess what? The dirty little secret is the skills that got you to where you are today may not be the skills that you need for tomorrow. So that's why I come back to some of the things that I look for, you know, that innate curiosity, because you'll go and find the, the knowledge that you need. And if you're coachable, we can help you get there quicker. And that applies to individual contributors and to managers all the way up all the way up the hierarchy. So, you know, being specific about this in terms of what are some of the things that people can do to help if they find themselves in this situation. I think the first one is that when we're talking about managers, how do we help managers to be better? How do we help them ensure that they, they don't get those two quarters of poor performance? Well, just like reps, I think our role as leaders is to help them understand what good coaching looks like, right? So often, I think, especially early in my career, I was driven by numbers and pipeline and pipeline coverage. What I didn't realize that I hope I realize now is that my job as a manager, as a leader is yes, to deliver numbers, but my real currency, the currency I truly deliver is behavioral change. It's helping my reps get better at what they need to do every single day. It's incremental gains, right? You only have to look at Brailsford and others that have led, led some of the leading Olympians, the Sky cycling team. Incremental gains, every small gains every single day. And to do that, given that the vast majority of our people actively want to do the right thing, actively are passionate about being the best that they possibly can at work, one of the best ways to do it is to look at your best performers, to identify the behaviors that are driving and contributing to their performance, and then bring those behaviors back and build a blueprint, build a recipe, codify it, and then use that as your blueprint to take to the rest of your teams to say, Hey guys, this is what good looks like. And then coach people towards that, you know, creating a culture of coaching is one of the best things that we can do to accelerate our talent. And guess what? To retain our talent and the organizations that, that succeed today. And I I would argue will succeed in this battle for talent uh, for those uh, are those organizations that are doing exactly that they are helping their people succeed they are defining what good looks like in a way that those individual contributors can understand and digest it bite-sized piece by bite-sized
0: piece interesting help me uh, understand this then I see a lot of managers say we don't have time to coach. And often they're just not making the time. But a lot of people think of coaching as you know needing the kumbaya moment, a bit of incense, nice safe place, candles, uh, and an hour. But actually, my, my favorite type of coaching is operational coaching, which is on the hoof, in the moment, at the point where they need it, And I I stop, I think, and I ask myself the question, does it require an answer? Or if I ask the right question, will they be able to solve the problem? And then coach them maybe three, five, six questions so that they can work it out for themselves. And don't give them so much that you give them the answer. Just give them enough to work it out. And then agree an outcome, because it's important that there's the incremental measurement and that they can see each time they get uh, they ask for help, they improve. Because I think that's another really important part that's missed in a lot of training. Because most most training that's gone online this depressing, has a one to one and a half percent completion rate. That's the average. Three percent is the gold standard, and I've seen the occasional organization that's really well thought through with maybe twelve and a half percent. But by and large, at the end of it. What they've done is they've sat through a video and then they've filled out multiple choice and there's no reinforcement and no implementation. So I think one of the most important things that we can do is teach managers how to do operational coaching on the job when people need it. Spend time out in the field with your reps on windscreen training. Coach what you see. But I really don't see that happening. There was a, a report that came out, uh, I think it was Sanders uh, Research uh, Center, and 83% of managers were convinced they were giving coaching, but only 17% of their reps believe they were receiving it. So I think, can you define what you mean by coaching? Because I think a lot of people uh, mistake it for training, mentoring, telling.
1: By the way, I think if there's one thing that people take away from this conversation, it, it's that summary that you've just given, I think it's incredibly important. It's a game changer, right? Get the coaching right and, and good things will happen. Your pipeline will follow. Your customer experience will follow. Your retention, all of that um, will, will, will happen. So I think, you know. firstly, I ha- have had some conversations with a very good friend of mine now, a guy called uh, Scott Edinger. Um, uh, very well published in HBR uh, and Forbes. And he works with a lot of business leaders worldwide around how to get the most from their business. And one of the things that Scott talks about is creating this culture of coaching. And his guide is that 20% of your time as a manager should be spent coaching your people. And I like, Marcus, what you were just saying around operational coaching, coaching in the moment. And the reason that that's important is because, in my view, that's what drives incremental change. One of the fundamental flaws of traditional training, right, never mind the stats, right, it's 90%-ish of training is lost within 90 days, unless it's reinforced. It's not quite 90%, it's actually 84 but, right, it's 84%, percent is gone without reinforcement. Which, what that's
0: 84 pence in every pound. Is burnt,
1: gone, no return. In fact, it's even worse than that because you've taken your people out of the field.
0: Yeah, at four do grand a day.
1: you've done plus yeah. played all the costs. So, so look, that incremental training, that, that that operational training, is where you drive the incremental gains. It's where you reinforce the behaviours. And again, I come back to this is about behaviours. This is about helping people learn and master new skills. And you know whether we all have to think back to the time we first learned to ride a push bike or whether we've learned to play the guitar or the piano or we've learned to windsurf, right? When you first get on a windsurfer, you, you don't fly across the, the the bay, right? Looking like some Olympic hero. You spend a lot of time falling face first into the water or bum first into the water. And it's the same with sails.
0: Or onto the sail.
1: <laughs> or onto the sail.
0: And then a very ungainly dismount.
1: <laughs> but guess what? The more you practice it and the more frequent you practice it, ah. the better you get.
0: And and this was my point, because coaching without practice and reinforcement in a safe environment is really um, a waste as well. Uh, Gartner released a study, I think it was in 2019. They said that with only one hour of ongoing reinforcement after training, companies get a 36 times higher return on investment. So if you're spending money on training, get them your money's worth. When we think about that whole piece about reinforcement, again, I've I, Full disclosure, I do work with this company, but the reason I decided to join them was because I could see the problem. Without practice, then skills dissipate and you forget. And you need to finesse it until you actually appropriate it, until you own it, Uh, and you've mastered it, and you've made it your own, as opposed to just sounding like you're doing a technique. And so there's this fabulous tool, and it's a pittance uh, per person. And it allows me as a trainer or a manager to identify moments where you might be struggling to bring in a price rise or introduce a new product or introduce a change in regulation or whatever. And I can say, Andy, I noticed that you were struggling with this moment. I'd like you to record a video of yourself and follow these instructions. And this is how we'll uh, assess it. Then they can practice it in a safe environment. Now, the thing I really loved about it, this is what really caught my attention, is they typically record themselves four or five times before they upload it. So they become self-aware. And then I can coach at a time that's convenient to me. And they can do the uh, exercise in the car or on the lavatory or wherever. I don't care. But the beauty is it can go back and forth and I can personalize my coaching and they can personalize and individualize their practice. So it's contextually relevant. And this is where I think so much training is missing out because it misses the context, it misses the relevance.
1: To, to your point, it's very easy to think that you're coaching people when actually you're doing a pipeline inspection or a deal review. Those things are not necessarily coaching. Quite often they are not no. because they are focused on driving a different outcome than driving behavioral change. And and again, I come back to the purpose of coaching is to help people learn and master new behaviors, new skills.
0: So this is really interesting because I, I know that you're passionate about alliances and channels and so on. But I think that one of the really interesting qualities of the best channel managers and channel chiefs is that because they have only as their currency trust and influence, they've learned how to generate discretionary effort, find common ground, and drive collaboration. And they have very low self-orientation. And it's all about helping others to succeed. And interestingly enough, I think that it's likely that many of the leaders, the sales leaders of the future, will come out of the channel. And, and I'd be really interested in your take on this, because I think we're seeing a massive shift in the way buyers buy, and this big push towards marketplaces and ecosystems. And a lot of people, I think it was uh, 77% of people, B2B buyers, uh, wanted a uh, seller-free buying experience. Sorry, 43 uh, But 77% of them said that they'd actually churned because they bought the wrong thing. Now, that's a really, that's a damning indictment of us as a profession, because we've driven them there. And the reason that they churned, because, because they didn't get their questions answered. Now, yeah. um, yep. then I think vendors, because the stack has become so sophisticated in, in enterprise, I, I was blown away by this. Um, enterprises are running eight to 900 applications in many cases. <sighs> wow. Now, you'd not want to be the CTO. <laughs> well,
1: it's, it's, it comes to us back to the earlier part of our conversation, right? It's very tempting to just add another piece of technology to just help our people. But again, I would argue that that may or may not have the impact. You know, It depends whether it's aligned to your strategy. The key thing here is... And ultimately, if we're talking about helping our managers and helping our salespeople be better at what they do and avoid those situations where buyers report um, that that a rep has been able unable to answer their questions effectively, how do we do that? Well, we give them a framework. We give them a blueprint so that they understand what to know, what to say, what to show, and what to do in a given situation. Because we know from the work that we've done with our best performers that typically in that situation with that buying persona, with this product line in this industry, whatever it might be, that that is aligned to the outcomes that we're seeking to drive.
0: And in your experience where you've been able to do that, how has that affected actual revenue performance?
1: I'll quote you a, a high spot number here. So across all of our customers that have used what we call sales plays. So it's a blueprint, right? It's this recipe that I've talked about. On average, and this is the average number, they see a 19% uplift in quota attainment. 19%.
0: As in they get 19% more on their quota or 19% more reps hit
1: quota? 19% more reps achieve achieve quota. Right,
0: okay. Interesting, because actually, really in significant. 2019 and 2020, the research that I saw, uh, which I think again came from the SRC, was it was 44% of reps hit uh, quota in uh, 2019 and only 40 in 2020. Um, so um, it, it's chronic at the moment. Well, obviously, the pandemic's been an issue. Buyers are very, very nervous Let's think about this. Given the conditions that buyers are buying in, massive noise, enormous confusion and complexity, under enormous pressure, having to operate in the pandemic world, uh, we're now looking at inflation. Supply chain inflation in construction is up to about 24% in some cases. And you're looking at uh, hospitality, 12.5%. So that's you know starting to uh, kick off. Interest rates are rising, which is going to be really very interest- interesting because so many companies are, um, have been sucking on the teeth of cheap, mo- cheap money for a long time. I'm really curious, what are you doing to prepare your managers for what's to come?
1: Well, I try and practice what I preach. Uh, <laughs> you know, look, one of the things I think as a leader is that we've got to be prepared to do the things that we ask our people to do. We don't have to be as good as them and we certainly don't always have to have the answers. But I think that, you know, a really strong part of my philosophy as a leader is, is integrity. And, and part of that is being prepared to do exactly the same things that that I ask the people around me to do and trying to make sure that that no time does my ego get in the way. We talked earlier about the concept of practice, you know, the concept, whether that's through a technology that allows me to record a video or not. I think that one of the one of the things that we as an industry do not do enough of is to deliberately create safe space where people can practice, right? It's called role play. And, you know, the thing about role play is it's the safest environment because it's just with your peers and your colleagues, right? It's not with your most expensive customer. That's not the place to practice, by the way. The place and to this practice, practice is practice. with your peers and your colleagues and with your manager, because guess what? They are the ones that are best placed often to give you feedback. And it's the hardest environment because they, they kind of know the pitch. They know the story you're trying to tell. But it is the most forgiving because you know, the worst thing that happened is that you fumble your words and you have another go at it. And look, we were doing some training just two weeks ago. It came to the first part of, of, of the training that we did because we wanted to reinforce it through some role play. I put my hand up because I figured, well, I was the you know the person in the room that had to, uh, I, I felt I, I wanted to put myself out there and say, hey guys, you're in a safe environment. So lead by example. And I got all the way through this particular exercise and I'd given three numbers and the first number, I'd landed my point. Second number, landed my point. I got to the third number, I couldn't remember what the what the number meant. Hey, we were in a safe environment, so we all rolled around on the floor laughing at the boss getting it wrong. Um, but do you know what? It, it was a great experience. And so, um, how are we preparing? Well, we're trying to drink our own champagne. We are trying to understand what are the behaviours that lie behind the success of our top performing reps. How can we then? Build that into recipes to blueprints into, into sales plays that we can then coach and reinforce with our core performance. Because, guess what? Typically, in an organization, rep performance is a bell curve.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you can move that, that that middle, big, thick part of the bell curve, yep. 19% points to the right, that's
0: a lot of points. the
1: that's impact of points. on revenue will far outstrip. Any incremental you can revenue you can drive from your your top performers. All right. And one of the biggest mistakes I've seen and I've done, I've got the scar tissue from this, is to continue to put up the quotas of the top performers. Don't do it. Go to your, you know, look after your top performers, cherish them, learn from them, then focus on that frozen middle. Because if you can thaw that frozen middle, the impact. You know, and your ability to break out of that that quarter by quarter cycle that we we talked about earlier on is far greater. And and that I think is there's some real secret sauce there. So you know, for the leaders that, that are on this, look to your best performers, understand what the behaviours are, and then try and try and wrap that in a in a recipe. Try and codify that. Try and build some training and coaching around helping those specific specific skills that you see.
0: T- Tom showed off runs the very very smart one page operating rhythm do you do something similar encourage your people to
1: i'm not familiar with Tom's work maybe i should be i'll, I'll follow up with you after that because i'm very curious about it you know i think we're all looking for the for for the secret sauce so yeah i mean for me look it's it's a mixture of weekly one to ones i think that's very important that's a very special time along with a cadence of what you would expect around forecast and pipelines but one of the things that that I'm increasingly trying to focus my time on is leading indicators, not lagging indicators. Right. So I, I want to understand, for example, what are the conversations that that our, our people are having with early stage prospects? Where are those conversations converting to the you know to the next meeting to the next meeting, and and where are they not, and why is that happening? I'm, I'm trying to get. As far back into the process to get early indicators, because that then gives me the time that I know I need with a nine-month sales cycle to to not get caught in that last minute, last week of the quarter vulnerability.
0: Absolutely. Have you come across Ebster? Yes. Are you using it? Because
1: we we're, we're, we're not using it, but uh, but you know, okay. I think they're they're an interesting technology.
0: It's really very, very smart. I'm starting to play with them. The red report's really fascinating. So the red Red report looks at um, uh, revenue, frequency of engagement and touch, and it spits out your deals and uh, accounts are vulnerable. So if anyone is struggling with this kind of thing, the, the free version will just go into your CRM and tell you. We just did this exercise very recently. How many millions of dollars worth of pipeline uh, have no next step? You know, yeah, that should be an alarm bell. And what hasn't advanced? You know, what's frozen? So we can see where you know we've got one account where we had a ninety-three percent engagement level, but the probability was below fifty. So that to me is a huge alarm bell. Why are we putting all this effort in? So we're probably speaking to the wrong people.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, look. Simplistically, right? We've all been in those deals where you're getting a ping, what, what I call this the ping pong effect, right? Ping pong. I email you, you email me back. I call you, we, we you get that ping pong, just like on table tennis. I hit you the ball, you bat it back to me. I hit it back, and, and you get that regular cadence. And and you know when that's happening in a business relationship, in an opportunity, it's a wonderful thing. Now, of course, it's not the only thing that you need to do to make sure that that you're having uh, an informative decision. Of course, it's not that simplistic, but it is an indicator. It is a leading indicator because nine times out of 10, when that operating rhythm, that that ping pong changes, something's happened. And we've all been, I know I've been in that situation where the ball has stopped coming back. So I hit another ball and it doesn't come back. I hit another ball and it doesn't come back. And then guess what? The ball that comes back is sorry. We've decided to go with somebody else. So I think you know those types of maybe non-traditional indicators that yep. give you prior warning, hopefully early, earlier, are really, really important.
0: One I'm toying with, and I'd love to see if it's possible to get this information in a way that people would will be willing to share. Because uh, my suspicion is the answer is no. But if we can track the level of engagement of managers within the accounts that their reps are involved in, in terms of coaching activity, not, <laughs> funny story, I was uh, speaking to one of my old clients, and he's done an amazing job. They did 374% of quota. He got promoted, their team smashed it, and uh, whatever. And they out of 10,000 deals that they closed last year in his team, there was only one where they discounted. Which is where his manager came and negotiated the deal. <laughs> so uh, again, I, I'd be really, really curious about how ma- how your managers engage with reps out in the field.
1: Well, of course, that's been challenging in the last couple of years. Yeah, of course. right. You know, the days where we could traditionally ride alongside, ride shotgun. It's been, you know, the, the mechanics of that have changed. The principles, I would argue, have not changed. It is as important now to catch our people doing great work as it has always been, because then we can reinforce that, that in the moment coaching to drive that incremental gain. Unless you are in the field with your salespeople, I don't know how you would understand what you need to coach against. It's very hard to evolve your organization unless you're getting the feedback and the data that you need to be confident that your strategies that, that, that you want to drive are, are aligned with, um, you know, with your people and where they're at. So you know, there are tools, there's this, there, there are technologies out there that will record calls. I think that the challenge for me in all of this is, is not the data. Getting the data is really easy. Technology is brilliant at that, but how how do you extract from gigabyte upon gigabyte of data? How do you in, in extract those those pieces of insight, those moments of truth? And of course, you know you can listen to calls. I'm not, you know, I, I think that can be very very effective. But when you've got the average manager has got seven reps, if they're not making time for coaching already, they're probably not necessarily going to make time to, to listen to a whole bunch of calls you've got to have whether it's listening to calls whether it's being in meetings with your reps whatever your tool of choice is i think there is nothing more valuable than being there with your people to learn from and with them um
0: you coach what you see it, 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 you've got to see it
1: yes even if just even if just for your own credibility you need to be, you need to be, you know, one danger about feedback is, and I almost catch myself now, right, is, uh, and this is the challenge on this type of conversation is in being specific because it's the specificity that will help mm-hmm. drive the change. We've all been in situations where people have said to us, Hey, I just don't think you quite nailed that. And we've been like, okay, well, tell me more. What, what specifically did? What behavior did you see? What what words did I use? Well, I kind of just don't think you really resonated with the. Uh, it's like it, that's kind of nice, shining a light on on my own inadequacy. But how much more powerful um, would it be if we could say, hey, I noticed Marcus that during that conversation, you you when we came to the pricing discussion, you used this phrase. And, and when you use that phrase, I noticed that the person on the other side of the Zoom had this physical reaction. Did you, did you notice that too? Then we're isolating the behavior. And the beauty about isolating the behavior is it does two things. Number one, it removes, most of the time, it removes any defensive behavior by the individual that we're hoping to coach. We've got to create the safe zone. It's the behaviour, it's not the person. The person's intent was great. The words they used might not have been optimal. It's the behaviour. So let's isolate the behaviour. But the other thing it does is is it allows us to be very specific on what, where they're at and where we want to move
0: them to. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay. Um, So let's take a minute to talk about managing up. As a rep, obviously you get your target and your territory and all that other stuff, the great stuff. But very often, reps are asked to do stuff that takes them away from their core job, which is spending time in front of the customer, advancing sales, disqualifying out, researching, prospecting. And they get sucked into meetings. They get asked to produce voluminous reports that should presumably be automated wherever possible and the big question in my mind is why the hell are we producing this and how are they going to use it because if it's not moving the sale forward then why is the salesperson reporting on it so how can salespeople confidently manage up when they are getting pressure from above
1: so i think that the A couple of things that may help here. I'll give you one example. Um, whenever somebody comes to me um, to approve you know a, a discount or a particular situation, one of the first places I will go is to our CRM system. We happen to use Salesforce. It's not the only one on the market but it's the one that we use. And there is a minimum expectation of information that is that, that we require our reps to have around an opportunity. And what we have tried to do very deliberately is to align that information to information that is both valuable to them as a rep in terms of moving the deal forward, but also valuable for me when I come into the Salesforce record in terms of understanding where we're at, what are the dynamics? And the reason that that's important is because what it then does for the rep is if I don't do that, and I don't go to Salesforce, and I don't first check the information there, and then I do what we always, you know, so often is the case, oh, I'll just pick up the phone and steal their time. I'll send them a Slack and steal their time. They then have every right to, to say, well, hang on, Andy, did you check Salesforce? Mm-hmm. And and guess what? It's not just me that's doing that. You know, we we at Highspot sell as a team many, many SAS vendors, B2B, also have the concept of a team, right? I, I know of hardly any now that don't have a salesperson, a sales engineer, or a solutions consultant, maybe a services person. You know, it, it it takes a village. And the beauty is that if the information is there in that one place, anytime anybody needs that information, they know where to go to. It's in the fields that we define. Those fields we've worked out over time are the ones that matter. And so we hold our people accountable for having that information in there. But the key thing is that is directly aligned to a significant benefit from them, right? What's in it for me and what's in it for the rep is that by putting it in there once, they then don't have to repeat it 15 or 20 times to all sorts of other people around the organization. So I think trying to develop... Or influences processes like that. And if you don't have it in Salesforce, is there another way that you can get that core information in a central place where people can consume it in their time, not yours?
0: Okay. So I'm going to bridge into another topic in a minute, but using this as a platform. So one of the things that I've noticed, um, particularly you know, the last 10 or so years, as I've been, you know, trusted more to look inside people's systems and things, is the CRM is generally populated with total crap. And CRM hygiene is really important. The CRM should be the single source of the truth. But you know, in the CRMs that I've uh, had the misfortune of looking at and um, you know, uh, trying to uh, fix, 80% of the data in there is utterly worthless. It's just left a VM, call back in six months, busy. And there's no no meat on there that allows me, as their successor, uh, to do anything with it. And I think part of this is the ludicrous obsession and belief that more is better. And I see SDRs having lists of 10,000 that they have to dial through. I'm minded of Bruce Lee. I'm not afraid of a man who knows 10,000 kicks. I'm afraid of a man who's practiced one 10,000 times. And... The model, the predictable revenue model that seems to be so popular nowadays is throw more bodies at it, make more dials, inflict more crappy digital adverts. 4.3 quadrillion digital adverts are inflicted on you and I every year, and they get one or zero clicks. So how do we stop this? And how do we get people to start asking better questions and looking at the source of the problem? And even empowering our people to think like that.
1: I think we've all been guilty of it. I know I have. And and I know probably in, in in some respects I still am, right? There's still the imperative to drive revenue. But I think that, you know, hopefully the theme that people will take away from our conversation is there really aren't too many shortcuts to that. You can't just throw more technology at it. I'd argue that you 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 throwing more people at it will only amplify the inefficiencies that you already have. So I come back to my, I think my key point here is organizations, leaders deliver through people. And the more time that we can spend with our people, helping them to understand what good looks like, helping them to build the skills in order to be able to replicate that themselves the more likely we are as companies and as leaders to hit the ambitious goals and targets that are set for us. That's not going to change. Quotas and targets will go up every single year. The question is, how do we choose to respond to that? And I use the word choose deliberately because we can choose to get to that last week of, of, of the quarter and look forward to the next quarter and create this false, crazy pricing imperative for some, for for a customer to sign early, but buyers see through that. And more importantly, we damage our credibility. We train our customers to expect that poor behavior from us every time.
0: And remember, you suffer the lifetime of that customer, the discount that you give away today, because you're never going to recover, and you're always going to be on your back foot.
1: Oh, and by the way, the five or six people that they tell.
0: And the five or six people they tell. So you touched on something that's really important. Are you familiar with Price's Law? Mm -hmm. What Andy was talking about there is that as an organization grows, talent grows in a linear fashion, and whining, moaning, and bitching grows exponentially. Um, So Price's Law basically states that 50% of your production will come from the square root of the number of people in your organization. And so as an organization scales, with 10 people, three of their salespeople produce 50% seven the other. With 100 distributors, 10 will produce 50%. 90 will produce the other 50%. With 10,000 resellers, 100 will produce 50%. 9,900 will produce the other 50%. So um, as the organization scales, what tends to happen if you're not planning ahead and you're not thinking about succession, you're not thinking about apprenticing and giving people a runway to grow into their next role, you're coaching and developing, and giving them an opportunity to contribute. Because I think one of the big problems with managers who operate the command and control and supervisory style is that they miss out on the creative capability, knowledge, and perspective of their entire team. And that, I think, should be a sackable offense, personally. So if we think about how difficult it is to manage what advice would you give to someone who is coming into the role for the first time and how not to fuck it up?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, the first one's really easy, right? Leave your ego at the door. Our job, your job as a leader, in whatever capacity that is personal life, professional life, first time leader, experienced leader. I would argue that your job, my job, is not to have the answers is not to seek to have the answers all the time. We've all worked for those people that it's, you know, tell, oh, this is how you do that, Marcus. This is how you do this, Marcus. Um, Unfortunately, you know, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But the one thing it does kill is that creativity, is that evolution, is that learning, right, which is such an important part of retaining our, our, our best people. So leave the ego at the door. Seek not to have the answers, but rather focus on the questions. Focus on understanding the why. Focus on understanding how something happened. Focus on what the lessons are to take away from that. Consult with your team. Listen to them. You don't have to be, you don't always have to act on what you hear but it's imperative to understand their perspectives because by doing that, you'll be able to better diagnose the situation you're in. And also, you know, I think creating that safe space where everybody does, does have a voice because guess what? I've never been in an organization where one of us has been as smart as all of us. And I've worked with some really smart people. So I think that creating that environment where there is discussion, it's respectful discussion. You still get to make the calls as the leader, but you do it in an informed way that has no ego, that is solely there with the purpose of growing your people, growing your customers and growing your organization. That's probably a great place to start.
0: I've noticed something about you, Tom, Tom, Chris, Dad rage, and various others, that you're all very calming when we speak to you. And there's a real sense of humility there as well. So let me ask you this, because I, I suspect you've got some doozies here. What was your best mistake as a manager or a leader? And what did you learn from it?
1: Best mistake.
0: You may not have felt at the, at the time.
1: I mentioned this earlier. I spent six years in the military Many, 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 many years ago, back in the late 90s. And I remember I was an officer in the infantry. Uh, and why is that relevant? Because I remember one occasion where I asked a soldier to do something that I was not prepared to do myself. Now, the soldier did what was asked of him. It was an order, right? It's, it's, the army is not a democracy. It's not quite what people think, but it's not a democracy. But I knew immediately that he knew that I was not prepared to do this. And I knew it immediately at that moment, I had lost his respect. And so what I try to avoid in all that I do now, I try to remember to be humble, to accept that I don't always have the answers. And I also understand that respect is something that has to be earned over time. It is not something that 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 is can be demanded. It, it can be given. It can't be demanded. So I think that was a, a, you know, I was lucky. I was early 20s at the time. And I was fortunate enough to have a great platoon sergeant that would, kind of took me aside and said, hey, boss, did you, how did you think that went? And I'm like, yeah, it was, it was pretty shit, wasn't it? And he's like, yeah. And so I think that was the thing. And that's why I said to you earlier on in this conversation, I try not to ask things of my people that I'm not prepared to do myself.
0: Very interesting. So if you were to recommend some great content, books, audios, videos, whose material would you uh, suggest?
1: There are a lot of sales acceleration partners, a lot of sales methodologies out there. And I think all of them have many really good, important points. One that has always resonated with me was a concept that that came out through CB and Challenger. Uh, and I remember many, many years ago, sort of around 2008, 10, something like that, we chose to roll out Challenger, a company that I was working with at the time, a company called Responses in the MarTech space. And it just revolutionized what we did. And there are a couple of key principles in there that, that also have stuck with me, along with others from elsewhere, but these these two. Um, the first one is, is the concept of a mobilizer. And this is somebody within an organization that actually cares enough and has enough credibility to want to and to be able to drive change. Sometimes it can be a senior individual, sometimes not. But the point is that it's an individual that understands and recognizes change is needed, and they are willing to go above and beyond to try and drive that change. So that is an important concept. We look for mobilizers in all that we do. And they're, 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 I think, subtly different from coaches and champions. So that's the first thing. And then the other thing that, that also struck with me at the time was this concept of constructive tension.
0: Love it. Oh, it's, huge fan. it's
1: wonderful. And for any salespeople that are listening to this that haven't yet read about constructive tension, take yourself 15 minutes and, and go and look at it and understand what it is and think about how you might apply it in your work because it's I've good.
0: got a really good story for that. Um, So back in the 1970s, there was a, a bunch of very enterprising people who bought a bunch of 747s and converted them into flying aquaria. And they flew them over to Hawaii, caught live game fish, and then shipped them over to East Coast restaurants where they could get $500 an ounce or whatever it was. Anyway, long story short, the fish didn't arrive very fresh. So they consulted a marine biologist And the marine biologist said, put a shark in the tank. What do you mean? Well, nothing too big to cause them harm, just enough to create some tension. And I think the best salespeople I know have the ability to create that constructive conflict. And they create the right type of friction to get people thinking. And what I've found the best ones do is they're really good at synthesizing. So they capture all the information They draw it all together. And then by the time they present their solution back, they understand not only the problem, but the organization better than the people who live in it. Now, that is what we should all be aspiring to hire and develop. And the only way you're going to get people to develop that is by actually paying attention. And um, David Weiss talks about you have to love your people. And I think you do. It really is. It's uh, It's the same thing in the military. I live in Sandhurst, and the motto is serve to lead. Mm -hmm. Uh, Service is not servitude. It means that you help others do their best work. That's really powerful. And as a a seller, my job is to facilitate the best possible decision for the customer, whether they buy from me or not, whether I have anything to sell. And that's a huge shift. So another podcast, because I'm conscious I'm overstaying my welcome now, but I would love to uh, have a deep dive into values, values as a leader and as a seller. That would be really very interesting. Andy, I'd like you to do so. Thank you so much. This has been really, really interesting. Genuine delight. How can people get hold of you?
1: So, and champion at highspot.com is probably the easiest way.
0: And are you hiring at the moment?
1: We absolutely are.
0: If you're Incredible. interested in a really good career with a great boss, good team, and... Andy poached someone that I was trying to take. Uh, So hats off to him because he got there way before me. I was too slow, but she's fab. So you'll be working with amazing people. Anyway, Andy, thank you so much. Absolute
1: pleasure. I look forward to the next episode.
0: (laughs) Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, take notes, subscribe, tag someone, and pass it on. And if you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at last In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye bye.